If you have your Bibles, mess with me, Josh. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me pray for the, the preaching and the hearing of God's word. Lord, we, we do ask that you would give us ears to hear your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would feed us this morning. You challenge us from your word and also heal and encourage us from your word. Lord, we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so help us to live this morning as we hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is, as you know, our last service for this calendar year by God's providence. Uh, we had planned to take a couple of more weeks to finish up First Timothy, but since this is our last service this year, and we normally at the beginning of the year have our 5M series, we're going to try and finish out the book of Timothy this morning. So this morning, we're going to be looking at First Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 21. And as you turn there, let me just give you a reminder of why we were even studying this book and what we have seen so far in this letter. You remember, we sort of dedicated 2022 to thinking about what it means to be the church coming out of the pandemic, coming out of maybe some disrepair and some um, irregularity, we thought, let's think about what it means to be the church. What does God's word say about the church? What have we committed to as a church? And so Dennis, uh, Pastor Dennis started us off with the five M's, did an outstanding job uh, teaching and preaching through that this year. And then we followed that with a very short series, about four sermons, thinking about the relationships between pastors and people. What is the spiritual dynamic that the Bible talks about uh, that, that should define that relationship? And then we walked through our church covenant. Uh, we had never done a series through our covenant in the seven years as a church. We've gone through the statement of faith and other things, but we walked through the church covenant thinking about the promises we make to God and we make to each other about how we're going to live together as a church. And then finally, we came to 1 Timothy. We thought, let's go to a book in the Bible, a letter in the Bible that really is, uh, as a pastoral epistle, about how it is we live as a church and the things we should think about and know as a church family. Now, you may recall 1 Timothy chapter 1 opens up with Paul giving Timothy a charge, and that is he's to command certain persons not to teach any other doctrine. So right off the bat, in chapter 1, there's this concern about false teachers who want to teach the law, but they don't understand what they are saying or even what they are talking about. And, and Timothy's job is to confront that, to stop that, because by the time we get to the end of chapter 1, we're introduced to people like Hymenaeus and Alexander who have made shipwreck of their faith. And giving themselves to false teaching, they've actually destroyed their faith and their walk with the Lord. Now, Paul goes from that in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, he then starts to talk about what he wants the church to be and do. And in chapter 2, you might summarize it this way. He says, basically, I want people to pray. I want men and women in modesty and in dignity, both men and women, to pray to God, all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, to lift up holy hands in prayer and to be assembled really as this sort of powerhouse assembly of people committed to prayer. Then in chapter 3, he begins to talk about the kind of leadership um, that should be in God's church, that should look after God's household. And the type of leadership you're looking for isn't a bunch of leaders who are popular in the world's eyes, a bunch of people who may be great corporate leaders or nonprofit leaders. You're actually looking for people with certain spiritual qualities. 
You're looking for people who are above reproach, the husband of one wife, people who are not gossip and slanderers and malicious talkers, but, but people who are spiritually mature. Not supermen and superwomen as deacons and deaconesses, but people who have sufficient maturity to be looked to as leaders of God's household. God's kindness, about the time we were doing that, that sermon, we had the privilege of nominating our brother Durst Johnson to serve as um, deacon of men's ministry. Amen. And this past Thursday night, we had the privilege of voting and calling him to serve in that capacity. And so y'all can start calling him Deacon Durst if you want to. Because we're looking for people who embody those qualities. And this past Thursday night, we also had the privilege of nominating a sister to serve us as the deaconess of missions or, or global missions. The deaconess of global missions, our sister Sasha McGee. And so the sort of life of ministry leadership, as is described in 1 Timothy 3, is taking place in the life of our church. And Paul goes from that, and then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he speaks to Timothy about Timothy's own public, private, and personal ministry. He's to be dedicated to the reading of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God. He's to be dedicated to shepherding and caring for God's people as God instructs in chapter 4. Chapter 5 continues now. It zooms out from Timothy, looks at the whole household, and begins to talk about the different demographic groups in the, in the church. He's to care for and instruct the older men, the older women, the younger men, the younger women. Uh, chapter 5 around verse 3 begins a long discussion about how to take care of widows. And in the course of that, how to instruct or to challenge families to take care of their family members. And then we come down to chapter 6. In the first couple of verses in chapter 6, the other demographic group he addresses are those who are slaves, those who are enslaved and yet are Christians. And he addresses them about how to live in a way that honors God despite their condition. Now, in a certain way, when we come to chapter 6, verse 3, through the end of the chapter, we really come full circle back to chapter 1. The themes that were brought up in chapter one about false teachers, uh, about their sort of character, uh, the themes that were brought up about Timothy taking care of the gospel and standing against um, that kind of error, we're right back in, in this chapter. And this chapter has a certain kind of a structure. It starts with the false teachers uh, and what they're like. Then it talks about persons who are taken with a love of money and greed. And then right in the middle, it, it talks about the real Christian and what the real Christian should look like and what they should pursue. And then it starts to come downhill back to the, but to the rich and how they ought to be addressed. And then it finally to the pastor and guarding his own soul and guarding the gospel. It's the same pattern we saw in chapter one. It's a really elegant book in that way. And so as we come to wrap up this, um, this sermon series, I want us to think about the sort of five groups that are in this, in this chapter in verses three to 21. I want to think about the, the five things we learn from those groups, what's said to those groups. The first group is this, it's the heretic. It's the heretic, the false teacher, verses three to five. And the lesson very simply is, Stick with the Bible. As Paul is wrapping up this letter, he's telling Timothy in so many words, stick with the Bible. The second group is the greedy, those who love money. And what we learn here in verses 6 to 10, Paul is exhorting us, the Bible is exhorting us to learn contentment. Stick with the Bible, learn contentment. 
Then we come to the third group, which is, I said, the Christians in verses 11 to 16, uh, the man of God, he's speaking there to Timothy, but is I think Timothy, as he exemplifies genuine Christianity, and the point there in verses 11 to 16 is pursue virtue. Pursue virtue. So stick with the Bible, learn contentment, pursue virtue, and then we come to the fourth group, the rich, the rich in this world, verses 17 to 19. And the point there is, do a lot of good. Do a lot of good. And finally, we come to Timothy, the pastor. It's the fifth person addressed there, verses 20 and 21. Uh, and that final admonition to him is guard the gospel. Stick with the Bible. Learn contentment. Pursue virtue. Do a lot of good. Guard the gospel. It's the recipe to the Christian life. He announced God's word. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, 
Some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Well, that's how Paul wraps up his letter to Timothy, the young disciple, young man whom he trained in ministry, who he has left in Ephesus to place things in order there in that church. And as I said, he's come back to uh, chapter one and is addressing some of the same things that we saw in chapter one. And just as with chapter one, the first thing he does is address those folks and the issue of those teaching a different doctrine. Notice there in verse three, Paul there on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writes, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness. We don't use the word, Christians don't use the word heresy or heretic as much as they once did. After the Spanish Inquisition, when so many people were wrongly accused of heresy and put to death, the word kind of fell out of disuse, at least until the invention of Al Gore's internet. Now some Christians label everything they disagree with as heresy and everyone who they disagree with as a heretic. But heresy is a real thing. And heretics really do exist. There have been heretics and heresy since the earliest days of the church. It's a word that has just basically come to mean the teaching and the teachers of any belief that departs from orthodoxy that departs from right belief. Now, I think Paul gives us the recipe of the right belief here in verse 3. There are three things there that these people disagree with, right? They teach a different doctrine, different from the ones that the apostles taught, which we have now written down in the Bible. And notice now, they disagree <laughs> with the healthy or the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't even agree with Jesus. And then they disagree with the teaching that accords with godliness, that, that Christian instruction that leads to a God-like life. So they are disagreeing with the apostles, they are disagreeing with what Jesus has said, and they are disagreeing with the life that conforms, that goes along with the gospel and what Jesus has said. This is why we call them heretics. And, and the Bible here gives us a little bit of a profile. Not only do they teach things that are different, but notice in verse 4, they are puffed up with conceit. It's one of Paul's favorite sort of phrases there. He talks in 1 Corinthians 8.1 about knowledge that puffs up. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, right? There's a kind of knowledge that just leads to pride rather than to Christian love. And so they are like hot air balloons. They are, they're full of hot air. They are puffed up and proud. And not just that, notice, and they understand nothing. Which makes sense, because if you disagree with Jesus, you understand nothing, right? He is the Lord of life. He is the truth incarnate. His word is true. If you are going to take a different opinion than what the Bible teaches and a different opinion than what Jesus teaches, and you're going to advocate a different lifestyle than the one that the Bible advocates, you understand nothing. Now, the problem is, Romans chapter 1 we profess ourselves to be wise apart from the knowledge of God, and we become fools. We don't even recognize sometimes how puffed up and yet ignorant we can be as human creatures. 
But notice now also in verse 4, not only are they puffed up and understand nothing, but they they crave controversy and quarrels, especially the kinds of controversies and quarrels about words that lead to envy and dissension and strife and constant friction inside the church. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that. I hope you haven't, but they're out there. And you know what? They're not always easy to spot because their they're questions, when the conversation gets started, it seems like a reasonable conversation. They roll up on you. They ask you questions. They say, hey, hey, man, what you think about fill in the blank? You think that's a good question? You share your opinion? Next thing out their mouth, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. This is what I believe. It ain't, it, three hours later, right? you ain't no closer to the truth. Your nerves have been frayed and stretched. You're in this dissension now almost every time you see him. Hey, man, what you think about? You know, I'm still thinking about that thing. Man, I ain't thinking about that. No, leave me alone. They love those kinds of quarrels that lead to friction and dissension and trouble among the people of peace, among the people of God. And so heresy is not a victimless crime. It claims a lot of victims, a lot of unsuspecting victims. Notice who they are successful among. You see it there? These, this, these dissensions, this strife, this envy, among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Isn't that a description? Depraved in mind, right? The, the mind is, well, it's depraved. It's, it's wrong. It's twisted. It's fallen. And so these are not, it's not a description of Christian people, I don't think, and deprived of the truth. They've had the, the truth taken from them. I mean, imagine, as is sometimes the case, sitting in a Christian church, which is the pillar and the foundation of the truth, Paul tells us in chapter 3, sitting in a Christian church, which is meant to be the pillar and the foundation of the truth, mouth open like a little chick waiting to be fed the truth and having it snatched from your mouth, deprived of it. That's what heretics do. They're not like the good mommy bird who puts the worm in the mouth. They're not like the good shepherd who feeds the sheep. They are, they are thieves who deprive people of the truth. And people of depraved mind are victims of this. So what do we do with this description here? Let me give you just one application. One application when it comes to the church's warfare, really, struggle, really, against false teaching and false teachers. Be a Berean. Be a Berean. Remember those Christians in the city of Berea? I think it's Acts 17, 10, somewhere in there. Paul is going through there. He's preaching to them. And the text commends them, says that they are noble people. And the next thing it says is that they tested everything Paul said against the Scriptures to make sure those things were true. That's the kind of Christian we want to be. That's the only kind of Christian that is protecting themselves against the, the ravages and the influences and the seductions and the deceptions of false teachers. Only if we are committed to this book and testing what we are hearing from the pulpit or hearing in conversation against the Word of God can we be inoculated against this. So test everything you hear in this pulpit 
against God's word. That's why we are committed to the kind of preaching that we're committed to, of just opening the Bible, reading it, and explaining it line upon line, right? The hope is it, it makes it easy for you to see, oh, that comment he just made came from that verse right there. And it hopefully makes it easier for you to say, oh, yeah, that's what that verse means. And what he just said is what that verse means, right? My job as a preacher is to plagiarize God. It's to tell you what God has said. I'm not up here to take liberties with God's word or to create things or to be novel. I want to give you things you already know that come right out of this book. And then, and then trust that the Holy Spirit will take those old things and make them new to you. Give you new life from it because this word is alive. So test every preacher, teacher you hear. And, and, and this is a tip. The more clever they seem to be to you, the more creative they seem to be to you, the harder you come to this book. Don't, don't be taken away by eloquence and smooth speech. Test it by the book. If they teach the book faithfully, listen, agree with Jesus, agree with the book, take it in. But if they don't, Reject that teacher. Move on to the next teacher. There are plenty of good teachers in God's church for you to listen to and to be built up by without having to sift through the chaff of those who are 50-50. You don't want a teacher who's 50-50 with the Bible. This is not horseshoes and hand grenades. You want it to be accurate. Now, for that to work, for you and I to be Bereans, we have to be in the book. We have to be in God's word ourselves. We have to read this book. We have to read solid books about this book that help us to understand God's word. We need to be expositional listeners, and we need to be biblical theologians, some author has once said. Be people of the book, and we won't be people led away from the book, right? So listen to God's word. Then Paul comes in verses 6 to 10 to talk about another group here, the group that I've called the greedy. Notice what he says there. Well, the last thing I should say about those false teachers is at the end of verse 5 there. Notice what they imagine. Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So, so these false teachers have turned religion into big business. Right? They're thinking, oh, if, if I become a religious leader, if I get a pulpit or whatever, that's going to be the platform for me to sort of gain a lot in terms of riches and, and other kinds of things. They are, they are, excuse the phrase, pimping the church. Now, there's a contrast then that Paul wants to draw as we come into verse 6. Uh, notice what he says there, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing out of the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, this is, again, a little a little dossier, a little profile on the greedy. The first thing the greedy don't understand, verses 6 to 8, is contentment. Greedy people don't understand contentment. They don't value contentment by definition. They think, here in this text, that godliness is the way to personal gain. But Paul wants the church to understand that godliness and greed don't mix. Verses 6 to 8 
What we need is genuine godliness, God-likeness, a life that conforms to the pattern of the gospel and the life of Christ. What we need is genuine godliness plus contentment. That, beloved, is the formula for gain, spiritual gain. Why? It's because of verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Now, that's a simple sentence with profound implications. That our existence is not bounded by this world. We came into this world, and we're going out of this world. And the things that make for life in the world that we're going to are not the things that come from this life and this world, right? So Jesus says it this way in, in Luke's gospel, that, that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, that real life, true life, eternal life, the life that pleases God, life with God is not a life that is defined by how many toys we collect in this world. This world, the Bible tells us, is perishing. It's fading away, and everything in it is going to fade with it. We brought nothing into this world, yet we were alive. And we will take nothing out of this world, and yet we will be alive. So the things in the middle are not the most important things. They're not the things that equal gain. We were made for an existence completely different from this one. And all of our lasting gain is in that world, not this one. That's why he says in verse 8, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. God has promised to supply our needs. That's what food and clothing represent. We can trust his promise to do that. But it is our needs, right? He hadn't promised to supply all our wants, even all our dreams, however good they may be. And there's nothing wrong with dreaming. What he's promised, though, is to meet our needs. And what he's called us to do is to be content with what he's promised and not to be greedy for the things that he hasn't. So the question for us becomes, can we say, verse 8, honestly and joyfully, if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Can we say that honestly and joyfully? See, here's the consequence for people who don't understand commit contentment, but act on their greed. Notice in verse 9, they fall into temptation and ruin. It's really pretty bad. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. It's a trap. That desire is a trap into many, notice, senseless, doesn't even make sense, and harmful desires, senseless desires, harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Why does desire end in that kind of outcome? I mean, what's wrong with wanting things? 
Well, again, the Bible just keeps telling us over and over again, think of 1 John or, or James, that if we love this world, we don't love God. That this world is actually hostile toward God. And, and if we love this world and its money and its things and, and we are diving headlong, we are plunging into that love, the, the natural consequence of that is going to be alienation to God and destruction because there can be no life apart from God. Why is this the case? Verse 10 tells us, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. I consulted my favorite urban commentary on this verse. It's part of the R&B commentary series, Dennis. The OJs. For the love of money, people will steal from their mother. For the love of money, people will rob their own brother. For the love of money, people can't even walk the street because they never know who in the world they're going to beat for that lean, mean, mean green. For the love of money, people will lie, Lord, they will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, a woman will sell her precious body for a small piece of paper. It carries a lot of weight. Call it lean, mean, mean, green. Almighty dollar. The OJs said, they've been told y'all, I know money is the root of all evil. Do funny things to some people. Give me a nickel, brother, can you spare a dime? Money can drive some people out of their mind. Notice what Paul says in verse 10. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, that just makes sense, doesn't it? We cannot serve both God and mammon. That's what Jesus says. And if one loves money, then they will reject God. So question as we apply this lesson here, do we crave money? What are our cravings? To crave something is to desire it, to have a hunger for it, right? Maybe we most often associate that word cravings with a woman in her pregnancy, right? Women crave things. I don't know why, but when I was a little boy, it seemed like all pregnant women crave pickles. I don't know what that is. My wife, though, when she was pregnant with our, with our first child, with a fear, she craved foot-long subs from Jersey Mike's. And was it the BK broiler from Burger King? The BK broiler and fries, man. She went to Burger King or Jersey Mike's about four or five days a week. Did. They had that craving. It was so strong, it influenced her behavior. She felt like she had to satisfy that taste. And at the time, we lived on a road where you had to drive by a Burger King. She never passed that Burger King without stopping, man. And some people crave money that way, whether rich or poor, right? Craving, hungering for money like this. And that, that appetite, the Bible is telling us, destroys them. And so, beloved, let's check our cravings. Let's examine ourselves for the love of money because we don't want any false God over us, only the true and living God. 
I heard a pastor once apply this to giving in the church. He said something that I've always found helpful. Uh, he was pushing back against people who were like, oh, the church just wants your money. And he, he just said, hey, listen, God commands you to give, not to get money out of your pocket, but idols out of your heart. We want God to be God. So let us pursue contentment. We're approaching New Year's. People all over the world will be celebrating the new year, and one of the ways they'll do that is by making resolutions. Let me ask you a question. How many of those resolutions do you think will be about getting more, doing better, gaining in some way? How many do you think will be about contentment? Let us resolve to pursue contentment. If we have food and clothes, we will be content with that because we have a God who has promised to supply all our needs. We don't need to trust money and other things. So the third group, notice the Christians there in verses 11 to 16. Paul draws a contrast in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God. So now I ain't talking to the greedy anymore. I'm not talking to the false teachers. I want to talk to you now, Christian, man of God, woman of God. As for you, flee these things, flee false teaching and flee the love of money, right? Instead, now, here's what you do. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So, so Paul here now, is, is, as he summarizes and finishes this letter, Paul here now is really going to tell us what the Christian should be up to. Not the false teacher, not the greedy, but now the man of God, the woman of God, the one who is genuinely pursuing God. And he, we, we can sort of outline this in about four things. Real quickly, the Christian should, as we said, flee heresy and flee the love of money. You see that right there in the beginning of verse 11. Then number two, the Christian should pursue virtue. That's how I would summarize where he says there, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Pursue the kind of character that Jesus has. Be one who does what's right when it's, when it's in your ability to do so. Be one who seeks to live the way God instructs and to reflect God's own character and godliness. Not only that, be one who, who pursues faith, a continuing trust in God in every circumstance, relying on him, depending on him rather than other things, and pursue love. Right, that defining mark of the Christian. Jesus says, this is, this is how they will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another, right? So that, that, that one mark really sort of reflects the whole of the, the Christian teaching and the Christian way of life. Pursue it, 
chase after, run after that thing called love. Express it to others and receive it from others. And not only that, steadfastness. Be unshakable. Don't be like a kite blown by the wind in different directions that's only held down by that string, right? Be, be, like, be like the Washington Monument. Be like a, a tall skyscraper. Be rooted and grounded in the truth and, and be steadfast, unmovable, enduring until the Lord comes. And not only steadfast, but gentle. I like that pairing. Isn't it the case that sometimes we, we look at certain Christian virtues and we gender them? So we think of steadfastness in masculine terms as something tough and hard and gritty. How good of God to come back and also say, man of God, be gentle. Right? Something that we will often, again, gender in feminine terms. But but all these things apply to, to men and women, and we are meant to be dressed in them. We're meant to be cloaked in them. To walk this out, a, a kindness, a tenderness, a gentleness should mark the man of God. Not harshness, not combativeness and argumentativeness, but gentleness. Pursue virtue. Peter tells us that if we pursue these things, if we add these things to, to our faith, then we have an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. That, that the person who adds these kinds of things cannot fail, cannot fail. And so we, with that assurance, want to pursue, want to press into these kinds of things. And, and, and Paul tells us now it is a fight, verse 12. So we've got the fight, the good fight of the faith. Now, we're, we're not sort of... Um, combative and hostile and, and pugilistic with each other. We're not fighting each other, but we are fighting our real enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are fighting to remain in the faith, and we are fighting to receive what we have been promised as the reward of faith. And so we got to fight the good fight. We got to put sin to death. We have to renew our minds. We got to pursue holiness and sanctification. We got to, as Paul puts it in verse 13, keep the commandment, probably referring to the, the great commandment, love God and to love neighbor, the second great commandment. We sort of summarize all of the law, all of God's instruction and requirement of us. We are to keep the commandment until Jesus comes. But notice what our eyes are meant to be on. I hope this helps somebody. In, in the Christian life, we can, we can say, yes, I'm going to pursue virtue. I want to do all these things that are, are here. I want to be gentle and, and loving, et cetera. And in that process, our, our eyes can come down onto other people and onto ourselves. And we start grading ourselves. Right? And before long, we either discouraged or hypocrites discouraged if we're really facing our weaknesses, hypocrites if we're acting like they're not there. Our eyes come down, but notice, where, notice what Paul does with Timothy's chin. How he lifts his head up. Verse 13, 
I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So now he's already orienting Timothy to God who gives life and to Christ and his profession to be the son of God before Pontius Pilate. He says, now, with your eyes looking at God and the Son of God, keep the commandment unstained. How long? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how he's making Timothy look up and out to the coming of the Lord? That's vital. That's what keeps us from being too preoccupied with our ups and downs, or too preoccupied with other people. We, we are lifting our gaze to that God, notice now, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in the unapproachable light, no one has ever seen or can see, the one to whom we give honor and eternal dominion. You see how Paul just, as he looks up to God, bursts out in praise. It's not like Timothy's perfect or ever is going to be perfect. It's not like the church is perfect or ever is going to be perfect. But, but we have a perfect God full of glory and a perfect Savior full of love. And so as we press into virtue, as we fight the good fight, we've got to keep looking to the right place, to the hills from which cometh our help. All of our help comes from the Lord. And the one who calls us to this has already prepared the good works for us to walk in, according to Ephesians 2.10. He's already working this out in us. He's going to complete this work. And so the Christian is to be this one who is occupied with coming glory and working to sort of press into it more and more here in this life. It's, it's a hard focus to maintain. It's a hard tension to maintain. But it's the one that helps us to escape despondency and discouragement. It helps us to see a future and a world that is ours through Christ that cannot be taken away from us. In a sense, do as Martha, Martin Luther said, was thinking about justification and that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In that context, he said, now, we, we, we're going to struggle with sin. We're going to be imperfect. We are simultaneously just and sinner. Looking to Christ and knowing our justification is by faith, he says, sin more boldly. By which he does not mean go out and sin purposefully, but he does mean since we're going to sin and we're fallen and our righteousness is not a matter of our perfection, we may as well go ahead and live as fully as we can and in that sense sin more boldly and trust God more fully and hope in him and for that righteousness that comes through faith in him. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's Luther's way of saying don't worry about being called a hypocrite, but press into Christ. I love this thing I saw on Instagram. Instagram is, compared to Twitter, is the happy place. I saw this, this brother preaching, and he was dealing with this. Uh, he was dealing with um, the way people sometimes accuse Christians of being hypocrites and saying, I, I ain't go to church um, because it's full of hypocrites. And he says, you know, that, that sounds like it's wisdom. That, you know, that sounds like it might be right. He said, but 
When's the last time you heard somebody say, I ain't going to the gym no more because it's full of out of shape people? He makes this point. A gym full of out of shape people is probably a good thing because that's what the gym is for. People out of shape and some people trying to stay in shape, et cetera. It might just be that the church is for hypocrites. This is our gym. This is where we work out from hypocrisy to consistency. This is the place that you probably ought to be in if you're human. There's not a human who's not inconsistent. We all need this grace that God gives and this life that is to come. Let's move to the fourth group here. Fourth group is the rich. And the lesson that we learn from the rich is to do a lot of good. See that in verses 17 and 19. As for the rich in this present age in this life, charge them not to be haughty. I love that word. It's a word that sounds like it's meaning. Right? Don't be haughty. <laughs> we all proud and snobby, right? Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And again, we get the profile of the rich. They shouldn't be haughty. They shouldn't hope in riches. Instead, they should hope in God. And then verse 18, they should do a lot of good. He says it in three different ways. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So we have wealth all the way from the promises to Abraham down to this verse. Wealth exists in the hands of Christians that they might do good. that They might steward it for the purposes of God. And notice verse 19, how he orients the rich too. Not to this world, not to their riches. Don't, don't trust your riches will make wings and fly away, but, but hope in God. And then now how, notice how he lifts their eyes too in verse 19, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He's getting them to look beyond their riches to eternal life and to consider that they may use their riches in a way that gives them assurance and confidence. Here he uses the word treasure and a foundation in that life to come. I love that last phrase. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This life we live right now is life more properly, it's a kind of dying life. From the time our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God in the garden and ate that fruit that was forbidden to them, humanity's been dying. In fact, that was the curse. God said, if you eat the fruit of this tree, dying, you shall surely die. And so this thing we call life is a kind of dying life. It's a kind of shadow life. This is not the real world. The real world, the realest world, is the world that is coming. It's the eternal kingdom that Jesus is bringing. The real life, the truly life, that life that is truly life, is the life that God himself gives to people when they come 
to faith in Jesus Christ. We call it abundant life. We call it eternal life. Here we call it true life. And that's what it is to be a Christian. It is the miracle of miracles that people who were dead in their sins are made alive again in Christ. And as 1 John 3 puts it, a seed is placed in them. That, that seed is a, is a metaphor. It's a picture of life. It, it's an indestructible seed. So that, so that a new life is placed in us, it is the life of God. God's own life invades the human being's life. And they then have true life. We get it as kind of a down posit in this life. In fact, we get the, the Holy Spirit as a gift, as a guarantee for that, that fullness, that full payment of this eternal life. So we have a foretaste of it now. But on the day of Christ, when he comes again to gather his people and to bring his kingdom, there'll be no more need for a foretaste. We'll have the whole thing. All the life that is life, that exists in God, without any hindrance, will overflow into us. We'll have it to the full. It's a life of light and love. It's a life, a life of joy and peace. It's a life of every good thing and no bad thing. That's the life we want to take hold of. That's the life we want to make sure we have firmly in our grasp. That's the life you can only get through Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian and you've been maybe thinking about Christianity or exploring religions, God offers you life, true life. And the way you get that is by confessing your sins, and putting your faith in Jesus as the one who takes your sins away, who takes it to the cross where, where it's punished by God. And put your faith in Jesus as the one who is raised from the grave so that you might have this life, this everlasting life, this eternal life, this life which is stronger than death. And so that you might live forever with God as your hope, as your treasure, as your joy. This is, this is what's on offer to you this morning. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why Jesus came to save his people from their sins and to give to them eternal life in exchange for their sins. That's God's offer to you. Take it. Take hold of it. Repent of your sins. Confess them to God. Put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and follow him in faith, and life will be yours. And Christian, this gospel, Peter said it this morning, we had our prayer before the service. Uh, we were also talking about how we were coming into this morning. I'm sorry, Peter, for just putting you out here without your permission, but you're probably used to it. And he said, I just need to hear the gospel this morning. So I just need to be regularly hearing the gospel. Don't, don't we all, Christians, need to keep hearing the gospel? It's not just the message that brought us to Jesus. It's the message that keeps us with Jesus, that brings us all the way home. So you too, Christian, take hold of life. Preach the gospel to yourself.
Look fast to Christ. Look long to Christ. Long for his coming. Pray for his coming. Even so, come, Lord. Which brings us to our final thing here. The pastor, guard the gospel. He says in verses 20 and 21, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. I love this. Real simple instructions to the the pastors of this church, to aspiring pastors, to pastors anywhere. You want to find the simplest statement of your job description, maybe these two verses would be it. Guard the deposit. Protect the gospel. And the best way to protect it is to preach it. It's not by arguing, it's not by starting a blog, it's not by getting involved in a whole bunch of other things, which I have sometimes been involved in. It is, it is to preach the gospel. It's as Spurgeon said, the, the gospel is like this lion. It doesn't need to be protected, it simply needs to be uncaged. Let it out, let it roar, let it, let it do what it do, right? Guard the deposit. Keep preaching this gospel. Keep preaching this Bible. Keep holding out the word as the the sure way to guard it. And yes, charge certain persons not to teach anything contrary to it, but mostly proclaim it. Give it out. Let the people have it. And then, you know, the corollary, the, the, the sort of companion statement, at the same time, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So, Timothy, be devoted to this book. Be devoted to the deposit, to the teaching of the apostles. Be devoted to the gospel. And, yes, be learned in that sense. But don't let knowledge, quote, unquote, draw you away from the truth. A lot of things that we Christians talk about and should talk about and should weigh in on but don't be drawn away by it. Don't be drawn away by racial knowledge and ethnic knowledge. Don't be drawn away by political knowledge. Don't be drawn away by sociology. Don't be drawn away by this philosophy or that philosophy. Don't be drawn away by counterfeit religions. Stick to the book. Stick to the book. And even as you get involved in some of those conversations, which we do from time to time, bring the book. Bring the book. And notice what he says finally, grace be with you. Walk in grace that the pastoral ministry and all the Christian life and the church's life has this benediction, has this prayer over it, that God's grace would be with us. And the most remarkable thing in the world is that we are never without God's grace. It's never without. If if even for a moment God were to withdraw his grace from us, yeah, some things you don't want to think about. But every day in every circumstance, ordinary and extraordinary, we are creatures who swim in grace, who travel in grace from the lovely little cries of infants and moms caring for them in the changing of diapers and the wiping of noses, in the mowing of yards and the cooking of meals, in the taking out of trash and dealing with difficult bosses, in the hard work as students to prepare for tests, in the harder work of forgiving each other and persevering with each other, in the efforts we make 
we take to make the gospel known, to share with our neighbor in the in the sort of carols on the block and meeting neighbors or the youth groups. In the in the individual work of having integrity, of being the same person in private as we are in public. In the individual quiet, sometimes lonely work of putting to death sin, sins that you don't talk about in polite company, sins that make you feel like you're, well, they make you feel like you're the worst sinner, like your sin is unique. In all of it, beloved, God's grace is with us. God's grace is with us, and God's grace is sufficient. That's why we sing grace, grace, God's grace. And I love it. We talk about grace that is what? Yeah, I had to look to the singers because I forgot the words. Grace that is greater than all of our sins. That's what we have. That's what the church is meant to remember. Those are the last words of God through Paul to the Ephesian church in this letter. Grace be with you. And those are our last words for 2022 in our final service. Grace be with you, both now and forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, for your love and your mercy. We are undeserving. We cannot demand it. It is purely your kindness. We thank you for it, Lord, for without it, we would be undone. We would be plunged into ruin and destruction, just as this word tells us. We would swerve from the faith were it not for your grace. But by your grace, you saved us. And by your grace, you keep us. And by your grace, you will bring us home to glory. Help us to look to that day. Lift our eyes ever so gently to you, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. To you, the one who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no eye has seen or can see. To you, the one who who owns honor and eternal dominion to you who has given us life and kept it by your power, shielded by faith until it's fully ours. To you we look, in you we hope, to you we give thanks for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.